If you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 1. One of the things that many of us like to do least is to be in a situation where we have to talk about ourselves. Uh, Maybe for you it's been in a public setting where you have to introduce yourself. I've been in numerous ones of those. And uh, I have found that how I introduce myself publicly is going to be very different than how I introduce myself in writing. Uh, And the situation always will dictate the level of sharing. You don't want to overshare. So maybe it's just tell your name. Maybe it's just tell your name and where you currently work or what your position is. Maybe they want to know more. They want to you know your name and where you live and where you work or your name and tell us a little bit about your family. It's always different. On the other hand, sometimes we're in situations where we have to talk about ourselves and kind of build it up a little bit. Uh, several years ago, I was applying for a part-time, an adjunct teaching position, and I had to submit my resume. I went back and looked at my resume. It's always, I guess they tell you it's something good to do every now and then. Um, And now with resumes, there's usually a statement at the top that kind of describes you. Here's what I wrote. A dynamic, creative communicator with broad experience teaching a variety of age groups has over 30 years of involvement with people through pastoral ministry and community engagement well-versed in classroom delivery and online course instruction, strives to make teaching practical and applicable. Do you know how weird that feels to say that in public? You know, wouldn't you love it if I entered, hi, I'm Scott Howington. I'm a creative, dynamic teacher. (laughs) It's like, okay, that's enough. I don't need to know all that. By the way, they didn't hire me, so don't worry about it. Uh, We're getting to start in a letter today. In the first century, there was a standard format for writing letters. The letter would usually begin with the name of the person sending the letter, and it would also let the person know that was receiving the letter that it was to them. There would be either one addressee or several. And then initially it would get in, after talking just briefly about the addressees and maybe introducing themselves, it would get into the purpose of the letter. Many letters in the New Testament were personal many in the, in, the, in the first century, and many letters in our New Testament are personal. Other letters were written for the express purpose of being published so that all could see. And the letters that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles wrote that we have that make up our New Testament often were called occasional letters by scholars. That means that they were written for a specific occasion to deal with some specific issues. Romans is unique among the letters in the New Testament because it's not necessarily an occasional letter. There's not a specific thing that Paul is dealing with. Paul is presenting in Roman what one scholar calls, and I like it, lived theology. Lived theology. And here's what I mean by that. The first 11 11 chapters of the book of Romans lay out a very sound and solid 
theological foundation. Theology is the study of God. And so what Romans 1-11 through does is kind of lets us know who God is, how God works, how God has worked in the world. That's the theology part. But, but it's one thing to get all of that knowledge. What do I do with that? Romans chapters 12 through 16 deal with living that theology. Hence the term lived theology. Now we saw last week that Paul knew by either name or reputation some 30 people from various house churches in Rome. Upon the writing of this letter, Paul had yet to visit Rome. He would be there some three years later after this letter was received. Three years later, when Paul got to Rome, he was a guest of the Roman government. Came All expenses paid until he got there. And then he had to rent his own house while he waited several years to have a hearing before Nero. Historically, we believe that that hearing before Nero went well and Paul was released. But later on in the book of 2 Timothy outlines this, there was a second hearing that didn't go so well. And shortly after the close of 2 Timothy, Paul was martyred for his faith. Paul opens this letter, and I went back and checked. Romans has the longest introduction or self-introduction than any of the other letters that Paul wrote. Uh, It's almost like Paul is giving a little bit of his spiritual resume here. And, And as we begin this morning... Our overall thrust this morning is going to be the reminder that we all need gospel all the time. But to get there, we need to work our way through Paul's spiritual resume and some of the introductory things. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about the fact that you have a spiritual resume? In the business world, a resume is a snapshot. It's, it doesn't tell everything, but it gives a little bit of who you are and, and what, you hope to, what you've accomplished. And, and in looking at that, an employer, a prospective employer, can say, oh, yeah, they have what we need. It's a snapshot. I have one friend in business. He said, I, look, I spend 30 to 40 seconds looking at resumes. I can tell that quick what I want. Do you have, a, have you ever thought about your spiritual resume? Today, that's where we're going to begin, because I think just as it's important in life to go through and to review and evaluate your resume, in our spiritual world, we need to evaluate our spiritual resume. I want to look at Paul's first statements here, and I want to help you and me evaluate our spiritual resume. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all Gentiles to the obedience that comes from the faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's spiritual resume, he starts out first and foremost, and this is consistent with all of his letters, and he sees himself and describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter how much you earn or how successful you are, no matter what your life circumstances are, if you follow Jesus, the first thing that people should see and understand and know as they evaluate your living spiritual resume is, is God first? Is God first? My spiritual resume should reflect that God is first. Now Paul goes on, he says, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, The word called is a word used twice by direct reference in here, once by inference in these first seven verses. The word called means to be appointed. It means to be invited. It means that somehow you were asked specifically to do something. You know, there's been a change in the way churches work these days. Some uh, churches talk about hiring a pastor. I, I, I'm old-fashioned. I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of that term. That's so corporate. Uh, I believe that God called me. He invited me into being a pastor. And then I was called, I've been called to serve two separate churches in my career. Paul saw himself as called, as specifically invited to be an apostle. You can see that calling in Acts chapter 9. But Paul says, I was called, and then I was set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, I was specifically given a task, and that was to spread the gospel of God. I was set apart. It's a specific task. And so the point is that, you know what? Every one of us are, in a sense, called. We're called in the sense that we have been invited by Christ to come unto him. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Every human being is invited, is called to follow Christ. You have to choose to accept that call. And in a sense, believe it or not, while it may not be your task, while you may not be a pastor or a missionary, this or that, we're all set apart in a real sense for the gospel. My spiritual resume should reflect the fact that I'm one who has accepted by faith the call, the invitation of Jesus. Do people know that you know Jesus? Paul says, I've been set apart for the gospel. And then he describes the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, What he's saying is, what I believe stems all the way back to the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, when Paul wrote Romans, there was not a New Testament. When Paul wrote Romans, the Roman church, if they studied 
anything would they would study the old scriptures unless there came a specific letter from one of the apostles. So Paul says, what I believe stems all the way back to the old scriptures, to the Old Testament, the writings and the scriptures. He goes on. He says, I believe what was written regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Jesus, we see it in Luke chapter 2, we see it in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus is a descendant of David. Royal. But he's also a descendant of from God of Adam, he's God. And, 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 and so Paul says, the Old Testament scriptures tell us who Jesus was. And he goes on. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The idea was everything Jesus taught was validated by his resurrection. Part of my spiritual resume is to know the essence of what I believe. That's part of what we do here week in and week out, is we try to help you understand the essence of what we as a church believe. Paul's not done. He says, through him, speaking of Jesus, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith through his name's sake. Part of my spiritual resume is that I live in the grace I have received. We have all received grace. And if we've received grace, we need to be grace givers. That means we treat others with grace and kindness and respect and dignity. But Paul says we've been given that grace, and, and, and then he also says, I've been invited to call to invite Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Another part of my spiritual resume is to live in obedience. Do you know the first step of obedience you take as a follower of Jesus is that step to accept Jesus Christ into your life, to believe that he died for you. And then the rest of your life is learning how to obey him as you move on. And it is a constant, lifelong process. The other word we use for that is discipleship, learning to follow Jesus. But then he says, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called, invited to be his holy people. A fifth part of my spiritual resume is to understand I am loved by God. I want you to remember that today. It's so simple. It's so basic. God loves you. And he loves you just the way you are. And he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to stay the way you are. He wants you to grow. Paul says to the Roman church, you're loved by God. And you're invited to live a life that reflects Him. That's really what the essence of holiness is. Holiness isn't perfection. Holiness isn't, as some would say, holier than thou. Holiness is that idea of set apart and living a life that reflects Christ in me. And then Paul has his customary greeting, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
In the first century letter, it was customary to speak kindly about your recipient. Paul offers praise to the Romans. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. What a great reputation. All over the known world, all over the Mediterranean world, people go, wow, the people in Rome, they are trusting God in some really difficult circumstances. You know, you think about for you and me. I just read a letter in, in 2002, six months to the day after 9-11. I flew from Chicago all the way to Krasnyarsk, Russia, which is 13 time zones away. I still get letters from the missionary that hosted me. And I just read, let's see, what's today, the 15th. Today, he and his wife have a car loaded down with stuff and are driving from Poland back into Ukraine. The wife of this missionary is Ukrainian-born. And so they've been concerned for family and everything over what's gone on over the last year. And they are taking supplies in. You know, and, and it's just amazing to be, to be part of that, to see that. And you know what? I thank God for the faith of my friend. And I thank God for the faith of those that he's ministering to. I thank God for the faith of those who are living in difficult conditions. I thank God for the faith of those in Russia who are trying to make sense of what's happening. Because I ministered in Russia to Russian believers in a church that was like 900 people. And it was amazing to be part of them, be teaching during that time. And you know what? We thank God for their faith. They have a reputation. And, and Paul says, I thank God for you, Roman people. People hear about your faith. And so he offers praise to them. Uh, and, and, and he goes, the God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you. Paul prayed for the Roman church. You know, Paul, on all of his letters, talks about praying for people. And you think, man, he must have spent all night in prayer. Sometimes all you need to do to pray for somebody is say, God bless so-and-so. God remembers so-and-so. You know, God knows their needs. Uh, you don't, you and I, it might be that we do take a specific need to the Lord, and He's grateful for that. I believe He appreciates that. But you know what? I know some of you real well, but God knows the deepest needs of your heart. Paul says, I remember you. I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. In the first century letters, as he prays them and all, Paul says, I, I want to come to you. I want to visit Rome. Travel in the first century for the normal person was by foot. Now, some people could afford to buy passage on a cargo ship. No ocean liners, no cruises, nothing like that. You would go to a captain and you say, where are you going? And he said, well, I'm going from Antioch to, um, and we're going to be at the port outside of Corinth. Okay, how much it cost me? And you'd get on that ship, what, whatever was there, there might be chickens, there might be hogs, there might be cotton and all kinds of other, and you would, you would stay on that cargo ship and you would sail to the port of Corinth and then you would go across the isthmus and go, hey, are you going to Rome? I, you know, and, and that's one way to travel. Some people were wealthy enough to have a horse or a chariot. And the Roman wor roads were some of the best in the ancient world, not great by our standards, but great by their standards. But just like any of us, 
stuff gets in the way. Just like any of us, you know, Charlene and I have plans for some little, you know, we, we have a plan to go visit grandkids in Iowa in a few weeks. We have plans to go see our son in South Carolina a few weeks after that. We have all these plans. But sometimes a storm rolls in or the flight gets canceled or you get sick. Paul said, I've wanted to come to you and it just hasn't happened And yet, I want to come and minister to you. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift, verse 11, to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now. Why did Paul want to come to the Roman church Well, it's found tucked away in verses 11 and 12. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So while it's important to evaluate my spiritual resume, it's also important that I make sure that I intentionally encourage others. Paul said, I want to come to you because I want to teach you. I want to give you spiritual knowledge. But I know that if I come to you, we can mutually encourage one another. That should be a hallmark of who we are. Part of our spiritual resume should be that we're encouragers. One of the reasons that we get together here is not just so that you can hear me talk for 35 minutes or so. Now, I suffered one of my first defeats in foosball this morning. I lost by three points, and I told the young man that beat me that for every point that I lose, I preach for an hour. So buckle in, people. Buckle in. It's not so you can just hear me. I mean, I love to preach, and I hope you like to hear me. But that's not the sole reason that we come. We don't come just so we can send kids out so they can get spiritual instruction at their age. It's beneficial. It's good. We we don't just come here so we can sing a few songs. I am convinced more and more that one of the main reasons we gather week by week is so that we can mutually encourage one another. In fact, the writer to the book of Hebrews says just that. Not giving up to meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10.25 You see, when we get together for worship, we turn our focus off of ourselves and we turn it to the Lord, and as we turn our focus to the Lord, then also we are able to encourage one another. When we're together, it's an opportunity to do that. The word translated encourage here is a word that means to exhort, which literally means to move somebody in a direction. It's a word that means to comfort. It's a word that means to console. It's a word that can be expressed in empathy. And you know, I know. I know you can give somebody comforting words 
in a text or on an email or by Facebook or whatever. But there is no substitute for looking someone in the eye and saying, I'm praying for you. To look someone in the eye and saying, I know God loves you and I love you. To, when it's appropriate, look someone in the eye and say, you look like you need a hug. Can I give you a hug? Now, some of you are huggers, some of you are not. I get that. There's just, you know, the old commercial way back when, I mean way back when, said long distance is the next best thing to being there. There's really no substitute to being there. And when we come together and we bring all of our different backgrounds and personalities and everything together and we say we're here and we are for one another, it's encouraging. Being together is one of the best ways to mutually encourage one another. Paul says, I want to do that. I want to come to you, Roman church. Oh, yeah, it's great that Phoebe is there and she's reading my letter to you. That's good. But I want to be there. I want to stand in front of you. I want to look you in the eye. I want to tell you about the grace of God. I want to tell you about how God has worked in my life. I want to hear how God has worked in your life. I want to be blessed by that. I want to come alongside. Where you're struggling, I want to put my arm around you and go, come on, let's walk some of this journey together. That's what it means to mutually encourage. And finally, Paul reminds his readers in this opening statement that he is obligated to share the gospel to everyone. He says that in verse 16, or verse 14. I am obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. As Paul is so eager to share the gospel with these ones who are hearing this letter read by Phoebe. And, and you and I will stop for a minute and we say, whoa, 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 wait, wait. Maybe you're asking that question right now in your head. But Pastor Scott, I thought these people were already followers of Jesus. If they're already followers of Jesus, why, why do they need to hear the gospel again? Don't they need, you know, I, I've heard people say, I need meat. You know, I need. I would submit to you, when we truly understand the breadth of the gospel, that we all need gospel all the time. Let me explain. Paul, first of all, says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16. Some of you have memorized that verse. The word translated ashamed can mean disgraced, humiliated, embarrassed. One say, well, how could somebody be ashamed? How could somebody be embarrassed by the gospel? Well, remember the essence of the gospel message. That Jesus, that first the essence of the gospel message is we're all sinners. We're all, we're all separated from God by sin. The statement you hear often is, but I'm a good person. Spiritually, in and of ourselves, 
None of us are good people. In fact, you think about it, you never had to teach your child to say, mine, that's mine. We're naturally selfish. I had to teach my children to share. They knew how to possess and say, that's mine. It's just a simple, we're, we're all in need of gospel. So the essence is not a, it's not a user-friendly message. It's a message that says, you know what, I'm sorry, you are a sinner. But there is good news, that's gospel, there's good news. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And when you put your faith in him, you have eternal life and you're forgiven from those sins. But it, well, what do I have to do? You just have to put your faith in Jesus. No, I, I'm sorry, the old term is, I don't take charity. I need to do something for it. No, it's a free gift. No, I can't do that. Nah, I, I, and so you could get you come up with all kinds of different ways to make the gospel reasonable, and you can't make the gospel any more reasonable than Jesus has made it. The gospel means I'm not fully in charge of my own life. The, the gospel means that that I need help. I need help to be acceptable to God. I can't do it on my own. I can't earn it on my own. The gospel means I'm dependent. I don't want to be dependent. I want to be independent. I want to make my own decisions. I'm dependent on God. But there's more to the gospel. Paul says the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. There's more to gospel than just that step of belief. That's step one. But when you take that step of belief, and we'll see it later in Romans 8, you have residing in you through the Holy Spirit, the power of God. In 1866, a Swedish chemist invented a very powerful explosive. Designed, and he was designed, his father was in construction. They needed something more reliable and safer than black powder to blast rocks and things. And so this chemist named Albert Nobel made this explosive that was more stable than black power and he powder and he wanted to to come up with a name for it and he used the greek word for power the greek word is dunamis his word is dynamite the dynamite of god resides in each one of us who say we have put our faith in jesus christ you say, how is the gospel powerful? You've heard people say, I can't change. It's just the way I am. The gospel says you can change. You have the power to make the choice to change. The gospel says you have the power of the creative God in you. You can change. In the gospel, we have the power of God to be all that God wants us to be. In the gospel, we have the power to choose to forgive others. In the gospel, we have the power to humbly admit when we're wrong. In the gospel, we have the power to endure hardship. It's not a power that comes from strong will and a determined nature. It's the power of God that resides in us through Jesus. We need gospel. 
Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Another way to say that would be the righteousness from God. The fact is, because of Adam and Eve and sin came into the world in Genesis 3, no human being is right with God on his or her own terms. We don't get to set the terms. But we need God to make us right, and God makes us right on His terms, in His way, and that's through our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need gospel. And then Paul quotes from the book of Habakkuk. He goes on, he says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to the last. In other words, that righteousness from God is all based on our faith, our trusting God. And the righteous, he says, will live by faith. Paul quotes from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Some of you might remember, we looked at the minor prophets not too long ago. And we saw in the book of Habakkuk, this three-chapter little book, that Habakkuk was troubled by what he observed from the actions of God's people. And and he said they're unjust, they're unfair, they're self-absorbed, they're not following God. And he cried out to God and God said, oh, don't worry, Habakkuk, I got a solution. I'm sending the Babylonians to to discipline them. And Habakkuk's like, they're worse than we are. Why would you do that? And God in his response to Habakkuk in chapter 2 includes these words. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faith. You see, I need gospel, you need gospel all the time to remind us that each day as I live, I display God's righteousness as I choose to live by faith. Here's a fact. Every human being has a faith system. Every person has a faith system. Even people who say they don't live by faith, live by faith. We put our faith in designs and mechanics. For instance, we put our faith in the design and the mechanic of our vehicle to start every time we put the key in the ignition and turn it, or every time we push the button and, and, and start it. We put our faith in the mail carrier to safely deliver our mail. I could go on, but... We've had experience with that. Uh, My mentor used to say, faith is only as good as its object. And the objects of our faith often let us down. A few weeks ago, hop in my car. I'm going to take Charlene to work. Hop in my truck. Put the key in ignition. I thought, that was weird. Let's try that again. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. I thought, uh, I wonder if I have a dead battery. Fortunately, there was someone leaving their vehicle at the church that they were on a missions trip and they asked they could leave it here and they left me with the key. They said, you know, if you have an emergency, use it. This was an emergency. I run over to the church. I get the key. I get in this vehicle that had 300,000 miles on it. I prayed. Uh, and I start the ign- It starts up. I drive around. Charlene comes up. What's up? I said, I think our battery's dead. So I went and bought a new battery. It's been a long time since I bought a new battery. 
Holy smokes, people, those things are expensive. Oh, but you can get it, bring it back and get a $20 core re- refund. Yeah, but what about the other 200 bucks? You know? So anyway, went and bought a battery, came. I'd never replaced a battery in my truck. That was fun. I got it all out, all the little things. I had to unhook all kinds of things. You know, we have computers in our cars now, right? And part in the back of my mind is, oh, man, do I have to reset the computer? I don't know how to do that. I think the deal is they want you to bring it into the dealership so you can spend $500 to put in a $200 battery. But anyway, we got it all done. We got it. Car starts. It starts. It's started every time since then. Do you know what? Every time I get in that truck, I have dead battery PTSD. I get into that truck, I put my key in, and, and I turn it. Oh, okay, we're good, we're good, we're going. You know, faith is only as good as its object, and my object let me down, and now I'm kind of iffy about it. I need gospel, people, all the time. So, for the rest of the book of Romans, we are going to learn about the power of the gospel. I want to do this as we wrap this up this morning. I want to leave you, and this comes from not only my own study, but from study from many others. I want to leave you with kind of a broad outline of where we're going. I believe that you could break Romans down into five major questions that the book of Romans addresses. The first question that we find in the book of Romans that's, answer, that's dealt with from chapter 1, verse 18. We'll start next week there through 320 is this. What is wrong with our world? What's wrong with this world? Have you ever asked yourself that? Have you ever watched the news and go, oh, what's going on in this world? Well, Romans answers that, and the gospel tells me very simply, sin is the issue. The second question, so what is the solution to the problems of this world. And from chapter 3, 21 to the end of chapter 5, we're going to see that Jesus is the answer. I know that is so simple, but it is so true. You heard tale of how God's love impacted a young man. The love of God is powerful through Jesus Christ. The third major question that we'll deal with in this study is, how can a person live a good life? I'm a good person. Well, not really. You need Jesus. Well, then, okay, if I have Jesus, how do I live a good life? And in chapter 6, 1 through 8, 39, the gospel is going to tell me that I live in obedience, and that is the essence of a good life. The fourth major question that we'll deal with is, all right, who is really in control of this world. And chapter 9, 1 through eleven thirty six, the answer is, gospel tells me God is in control. Well then, with all of that, how should I, as a follower of Jesus, conduct myself in this world? How should a follower of Jesus conduct themselves in this world? In chapter 12, 1 through all the way through 16, Gospel teaches me, in essence, to love others as I love myself. And to do that in real and practical ways. When you and I take the time to step back and evaluate our spiritual resume, to assess, am I putting God first? Am I living obediently? 
we discover that to do that, I need gospel to make that happen. And when I want to be intentional and encouraging one another, when I want to come and ask God, turn my view, turn my eyes off of me and turn my eyes to others, I can't always do that on my own. I need gospel to help me do that. Because we all need gospel all the time. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his writing, his teaching, his life, his struggles. I pray that you would help each of us, each of us, Lord, to take that step back, to look at our spiritual resume, and to be reminded that we all need gospel all the time. And in so doing, Lord, would we give you the glory and the praise, and the honor, and the blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.